0: Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, and this is our Contemplative Conversation 15, first time in some time, and we are here now with the recently wedded and now husband, Mr. West Chance. Mr. West Chance, welcome. Hey, good to be back. How have you been? It's, I've been well. I've been well. I've been traveling up to Spokane to see you <laughs> at, at your wedding, and uh, it, it was really great to see you. And uh, I, the listeners, uh, they probably want to hear that you had your wedding in a beautiful park with a garden and so um you know some beautiful symbolism behind uh your wedding and I I think actually you did something really neat that it took me uh it took me some time to understand the meaning of um but and perhaps still I don't understand the meaning of but something that you and your groomsmen did and your beautiful bride Steph now Chance I suppose Uh, SS uh some she did with her um with her uh brides ladies I'm Forgetting what they're called for some reason. Her bridesmaids. Bride's yeah, her her bride bride's oh my goodness. My Nashville yeah. be appalled at me forgetting something about a wedding. <laughs> but you were all wearing either the bridesmaids wore belts made out of maps and uh-huh. the men wore ties that were maps. And even on the tables, there were yes. flowers made out of maps
1: too. Yes. That was our, uh, our kind of like colors were blue and green. And then um, we used a lot of map theme decorations since we love to travel and are uh, hoping to get to do more of that in the years to come. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. I, I had also two other thoughts
0: about what what might have been going on there. I was wondering because, of course, you and I are, are I wouldn't say so much fans as, as readers of Maps of Meaning. Oh, yeah. By by uh, Jordan Peterson and his claim being there that sort of stories are how we orient in the world because stories right. are themselves four dimensional accounts of something that happens. They have characters who move through time. and Therefore it's four dimensional, um, yeah. uh, which sort of reminds me, and I would like to talk about this at some point, and I will be talking about this at some point with talking about a fifth, fifth dimensional space, like a Tesseract with huh. um, within interstellar, where time is represented physically so you can just sort of go through moments in time as if they're uh, a library in a library but that made me wonder whether sort of at a wedding which is of course a major moment in your life with people from different parts of your life you had people from your soccer team in Spokane you had people from a few hours away who were friends of Steph growing up you had friends like me who flew up from San Diego or from down in Um, and down in Phoenix, either being graduate school friends or teaching friends, you had your friends from childhood, as well as your parents from the East coast. And it it made me wonder whether sort of what a person and their relationship is to you is like a landmark on a map that it is your moments with others, your meaningful experiences that you share, which create um, create orienting moments in your life that reveal to you both who you are at that moment and the path which you find yourself on. Mm -hmm. And I I was wondering, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I was wondering if the maps also might've been sort of physical representations of what friendship and relationships to others have been for you in your life.
1: Yeah. I think it's a, I think it's a lovely metaphor. Uh, you know, like we so, uh, rarely these days get to, you know, send actual letters to people, but for, Mm -hmm. for weddings, we still do. And, and so you sort of like encounter geography in a literal way there. And we kind of went one further with that. And we did it as like little postcards that had maps on them, of course, of, uh, we, we drew little lines with markers from, from their location to Spokane to show them like, here's the path you go on. And so it's sort of, yeah, the, the idea of the, uh, the landmark or the destination and the origin uh and the path between them all of that is sort of is implied there and i think connects really nicely with the the relationship between people you know it's sort of um well, metaphorically pretty uh pretty spot on uh with the relationship between places and um and perhaps if you like the stories about them the 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 events that take place in time and all that good stuff too yeah i think it's it's a very rich like semantic space, the, the map. Um, mm. I think Peterson's book um, doesn't do enough with it, honestly. Like, mm. it's a very long book. and There's a lot in there, but he doesn't really say much about maps per se. Right, right. Um, after the first chapter or two. So I thought he could have done a little more with that, honestly. Well, but,
0: especially yeah. because just, you know, the image we use to, to promote this conversation we're having is a labyrinth. And a labyrinth is generally, at least traditionally, sort of a hedge mage maze rather. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of a garden. It is a sculpted garden that uses the intelligence of man in order to sculpt a, a, uh, a natural space into a puzzle that man can then figure out. And so it, it's as if man alters the terrain in order to produce his highest quality, which would be rational thought or the ability to solve a problem. And precisely mm-hmm. through the ability to find his way to his goal. And what that makes me think yeah. about with a, ma- a map, given the fact that we as animals are psychological animals, and in fact, we have psychological territory as well as physical territory, right? Like we've talked about. Fields of study is literally mm. how we describe it. Or or let's go, you know, that's your territory. I'm not going to mess with, you know, uh, mm. lyric poetry. I'll stick with the epic <laughs> stuff. So what that makes me wonder, thinking about the image of a labyrinth in connection with a map and and specifically with marriage, is whether what a map truly represents or at least what a map in conjunction with a labyrinth presents is what it is that we are all looking for as Mm. people and what it seems that we're looking for is not necessarily a physical space or like a physical home uh, which I think is a point that both the Odyssey and the well and also of course uh, Milton's Paradise Lost and the Divine Comedy makes, but that mm-hmm. we we make our homes through developing a psychic connection to something or someone there, by having a meaningful experience that we then remember, which then remains in our memory, uh, in the service of our minds for the rest of our lives. That um mm-hmm. that that the true mental map doesn't lead us to any specific place, but to mm-hmm. To a person, or a group of people, or a place where something mm-hmm. that we love happens—that um, uh, yeah, no,
1: that I, makes a yeah. lot of sense. The the idea of the labyrinth, I mean, it it's one that is often sort of tenebrous, right? Like shadowy and scary and whatnot. But um, but it's equally, I think, important, like you say, to think of it as as the garden maze and the way that the the layout um, is designed. And this is like any good. Video game dungeon, right? Like it's designed to be sort of scary, but, but, but completable and sort of, sort of like you can see the whole once you get uh, to the middle or to the, to the goal of it, you, you see the whole picture and, and you're glad that it was a bit of a challenge, you know, that sort of thing. And, um, yeah. And the fact of a map suggests trust too, because mm-hmm. the idea is that the map
0: is correct. A, and that the person who has drawn the map knows what they have drawn and that it correlates with reality. B, which sort of suggests to me that if we have stories and if our stories, as Peterson suggests, are maps of meaning, that the fact that we have and share stories with each other, whether they be fiction or nonfiction, and I don't mean lying when I mean fiction. I mean, having an objective structure, but different, but per- perhaps non-factual specifics. Um, so like you can have people who are married, but they're actually snake people. So marriage exists. But snake people don't, yeah. so far as we know. But um, the idea, the idea
1: seems to be, sorry, like usual, losing my thoughts. Make a funny,
0: people? funny aside.
1: Uh, it, yeah, yeah. Well, fiction and nonfiction stories as maps of meaning. Uh, That's where I think you you digress from. And what I say right before
0: that, I'm sorry. Uh, like yes, yes, I agree with myself that they're maps of meaning. Um.
1: <laughs> uh, the I, I think you were saying something about where these uh are like uh, yes. art of so art or something that like that. I'm sure. The
0: fact that a story exists suggests that there is something true about it. That there uh-huh. is um that if somebody has taken the time to make a map to a meaningful moment or experience, that perhaps following the map will lead that the faith of a map that has been made seems to be that if you follow it, you will reach the same experience as the author of the map. Oh, okay. And so if that's a physical place, if like say Christopher Columbus makes a map to the new world and you follow this map, then you get to the new world and you experience a new world. Incredible. But with a story, it's, it's potentially even more interesting because a a, storyteller is attempting to convey a certain experience or event in a certain way that they've either experienced or imagined. Um, Uh And so sort of the magic of being a human is that we can convey experiences to each other. And I guess this sounds like a sort of bland point, but come to in an interesting way that we can convey stories, each other to each other that convey true experiences to each other without actually having, without actually producing the conditions that produce the original experience. So, uh, okay. So, kind of short. so it's like, we can have the experience of the real thing through the map
1: just, yes, um I, well that it <laughs> seems like a a pretty strong refutation of the old uh, conundrum raised by postmodernism over this you know long uh century especially um but you know it it pops up before that as well that there's like an impossibility of ex- of exchanging experience or sharing a true Um, picture of the world or something like that right like for all that that has some validity to it what you're describing sounds like a a fairly uh, comprehensive way to answer such a a critique by saying well no like there is the possibility um, of an honest and true in the sense that it actually corresponds to reality um, expression not only of Something physical, like a like an actual map, but also something imaginative or or metaphorical or what whatever. Right. Like our, like I said, artistic. You know. Right. Just yeah. because culture and so this is something
0: Stephen Pinker mentions in the blank slate, and I know you're reading his Enlightenment now, and I know that we're both sort of hip to him through the work by Jonathan Haidt, uh, who also um, sort of hipped us both. Also, like Jordan Peterson, to the work of E.O. Wilson, and. Uh, yeah. So it seems, it seems like y- just because we have not only a physical nature, but also a cultural nature. And even though things in a in a cultural sphere can change very quickly, that doesn't make them any less real than that, which is natural. In fact, especially if you consider the fact that, and this is, uh, the biologists seem to have settled this as well as the psychologists. Now, if humans have a nature, which they do because they share a phylogenetic, um, and uh ontogenetic developmental pattern we all have the same species development that has led to us over the past several hundred million years um but also we develop morally along same, the same stages as piaget and kohlberg ha- have shown as well and so if culture is the output of humans then culture is a direct reflection in of the nature of humans, then we are the sorts of creatures that produce culture as a function of our territory, our environment, which does not make it less real. In fact, it makes it seem more real to us if that is our unique song that we produce, even though the song changes rapidly because of the law of accelerating returns that Ray Kurzweil goes into in every single one of his books, um, that um, what is most real about us seems to be the story which we all inhabit together and Mm. produce together and can understand together because psychologically and physiologically speaking, we are isomorphic. And so Mm. it would make sense that if we were the sorts of creatures that can use language and we use language in the service of, of producing stories, which share experiences, that precisely what would make a community of individuals possible would be articulating their shared experiences in order to share more experiences with each other, which would then draw them closer together, which Jonathan Haidt's work in uh, The Righteous Mind actually shows proof that the tighter knit and more trusting and more unified a group is, if it fights against another less unified group, it wins, and this is a major claim I've been making in my Iliad lectures the entire time that the reasons the Achaeans went is they're more unified. They speak the same language. There are more of them. They find a more disciplined manner. They have more disciplined gods. They have a more rigorous hierarchical structure. It's all confirmed. And that all just goes back to saying, do, is the fact that we can speak and use stories evidence that we can just make things up and that there's no such thing as truth? No. And that doesn't make any evolutionary sense in terms of producing uh, group welfare or intra-group welfare. Inter-group is a little more difficult as we all know since Hobbes and because we live in, you know, of course we all live within groups. But the idea seems to be that what we use stories to do is to bond together within a group tighter so that when inter-group conflict happens, as all you have to do is read any history or look at any newspaper to see it always happens, then you are safer and stronger and better prepared. And so a question I might ask from a pragmatic angle is, if the stories you share with each other (laughs) produce greater trust, which makes you a stronger and more secure force, and that's a real effect in the world that makes you more successful in the world, from an evolutionary angle, does that make the truth that stories convey Less real
1: or more real than physical facts? Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, I think one way to look at the uh, what I call the the postmodern. I mean, I'm not giving it maybe a very careful um, elaboration of of its position or whatever, but but I think one way to think about it is that it is a, it is in itself a story, right? Mm. Of course, it's creating a kind of orderly uh, uh, narrative of the way that things are, and it's. It's positioning itself in a way against a dominant, as it sees it, you yeah. know, a, a long time dominant narrative of, of of the way that things are. And then, um, if you know, if it's not entirely logically consistent within itself, it doesn't really matter too much, right? If if that's not its concern, oh, if it's concerned, in- that's so smart. So,
0: okay, let me ask you a couple questions. The first question is: is is then the sort of intuition you're getting there? That it uh it doesn't need internal consistency because it's essentially a blu- a blunt weapon. It's not meant to be its own coherent system, but to be used as like say a virus or a plague or a disease or a weapon against mm-hmm. a coherent uh uh against a coherent um system of thinking or story. Uh that that it has sort of created a straw man story that it dubs the patriarchy, which has elements of truth, which is enough to convince people who look who are only looking for a pattern, right? Um, And so something interesting about that is that Jonathan Haidt has done work that shows that our natural proclivity and everybody's heard of the confirmation bias is to when we see elements of a pattern to look for additional evidence that confirms the pattern. But what does that mean that we don't look for naturally? Well, it means that we don't naturally look for counter evidence, which makes sense because our prefrontal cortex came around long after all of our, many of our pattern receptors we're already built in. We have something like 300 million pattern receptors in our brain, in our brains. It's tremendous redundancy. So the most sort of uh, natural way for humans to think is to notice patterns. And if you remember any of the sort of IQ or standardized tests you took growing up, pattern recognition and manipulation of spatial objects would have been a major part of the quantitative sections. And so, and so, postmodernism only has to have enough truth to suck in people who are only looking for enough truth to say that something might be true. And so it, uh, it can then use its lack of internal consistency to attack the straw man version of the, the prevailing Western story, which it calls the patriarchy, because all it has to do as a sophistical argument, rather than a sophisticated uh, system, is all it has to do is shake the foundations of the system which is which exists if it's just a weapon. And so if it is itself not internally consistent, what will it attempt to attack, which, which would, if it's a sophisticated virus, what should it attack if it actually wants to ins- ensure the crumbling of say the Western story? Well, the foundations. And what is the foundation of Western philosophy? Well, one of the major ones seems to be logic or internal consistency of story, that things make sense in this story and
1: that's why things work. Um, And so, yeah, true, you know, that there there is truth and and the honest attempt to convey it like matter in some way. Yeah. Right. And so and so just to get to what we were
0: supposed to be talking about the entire time, part of what we wanted to talk about here was that over the past 40 years or so, several leading thinkers in several different disciplines, neuroscience, psychology, um, uh, political science have been Mm -hmm. sort of pilloried for sharing publicly scientific research that they've done without a bias. And so we mm-hmm. see figures like Warren Farrell who wrote Why Men Earn More and himself worked for the National Organization of Women as its president for several years and wrote the book in order to help women make more and know the tricks necessary to do it. In fact, one of the, <laughs> one, one of his chapters talks about how if they join, you know, the mil- military, if they join, say, the Marines – Zero female Marines died in the Middle East in the 2000s. Hmm. And he's like, well, you can get danger pay. And most likely you won't die since no no women have died. And so he's definitely team women. And then you get people like E.O. Wilson coming out with his sociobiology, which later was dubbed um, evolutionary psychology, which David Buss has done a lot of good work in, um, Hmm. who gets pilloried. He was called a fascist. And uh, and, uh, because – because of talking about the individual fit, fitness of humans. And then you have Steven Pinker, a psychologist, who, who literally lists over 20 pages, 12 bullet point paragraph facts about proven sci- scientific differences between women and men. All okay. of which, all facts are taken from his female colleagues. So it's like, okay. And then of course you come to today. When you have a figure like Jordan Peterson who literally cites e o Wilson and Franz mm-hmm. Dewall, who is an anthropologist who talked about the morality or the lack of morality of chimpanzees saying they had the building blocks mm-hmm. or talks about Piaget, or talks about Pinker and actually has talked to Warren Farrell and Pinker and uh, Dr. Richard Heyer, yeah. who does of course IQ research um, he's talked to them mm-hmm. publicly and well, what's just so amazing to me about like sort of this postmodern attack against not only Peterson but all of these other scientists is that their books exist. Like I have them right in front of me and they have full bibliographies and it's like the Steven Pinker book. It's, it's a penguin. It's, you know, it's put out by a professional publishing house penguin. It's a New York times bestseller. He's a Harvard psychologist. He has hundreds of scientific references in the back, which I can easily look up it's the exact same with height's book it's the exact same with richard harris book it's the exact same with maps of meaning what my hang up is is how is it that <laughs> that these people are getting pilloried for saying things that their research colleagues who are also liberal every single one of these singer thinkers is liberal and half of them came from harvard eo wilson pinker right. and even peterson was at harvard for a time it's like how how do how do we get away with criticizing them without
1: substance um right it it's it seems to be a a bit of a, a fear response right like a, mm. a snap response like if you don't look very carefully and you're getting your information secondhand from mm. someone who's got an crime, it's easy to like paint them in, in in pretty uh horrifying colors but if you if you take a little bit of time and actually read what they say i mean not only is it well supported with factual you know informational kind of studies and statistics and all that good stuff but it's like very clearly laid out and like very reasonable as well it's not like they're very they're not like rhetorical in the sense that Nietzsche for example is like rhetorically dangerous you know they're 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 much more um writing to be understood which is kind of refreshing (laughs) you know and scientific and all that What's incredible because
0: it's sort of like it's sort of giving me a view into what our project has been, because you and I, I would say a year ago, were not interested in reading sociobiology or Mm -hmm. cybernetics. I mean, maybe you were, but I I didn't even know about a lot of this stuff or cybernetics or like the work in political science Warren Farrell has done. But something that Peterson constantly said when he was giving his lectures that I started listening to last year on Maps of Meaning is read, read up on the things I quote. Exactly. Uh, You know, look at my bibliography. Go read these people. And it's been shocking. All of his claims about gender in terms of how much they make and the differences in their brain are in Warren Farrell in his book, The Boy Crisis. They're all in Pinker's The Blank Slate. Like these issues are already scientifically done. The Blank Slate was written in 2002 by Pinker. That (laughs) was 16 years ago. And he was settling all these issues. And if you try to, and it's like, well, you know, if you don't trust him, you need to understand, well, how science works. He is a Harvard psychologist with the most books written of anybody in his department, which means he is the top psychologist in the world by the best metric we have, as as <laughs> as believed, or rather as accepted by everybody... <laughs> Uh, everybody who, well, it, at least is on his staff, which is the best staff in the world because it's Harvard, the best school in the world. Um, but also everybody at the New York Times and everybody else. I just, I'm not sure how you could have better credentials than the best. And right. and then and then, like you said, it's not confusing prose that these guys write, and not like Nietzsche. They're not esoteric. They're not philosophers. They're they're scientists who will write giant books that are, and that are not too giant. That are they're full of you know, sort of natural pros that can sell to, well, they can sell enough to be New York Times bestsellers. So again, it's sort of like how, it, how are the journalists missing this? How is the public missing this? It's almost as if what we are doing, just to return to my original point, is being like a, a new sort of investigative journalist. So rather than mm-hmm. being PhDs or traditional journalists out in the field, what we seem to be are intellectual journalists. Because what we've done, rather than several of our friends who have been totally content to just read superficial articles about Peterson and just stay on the surface level of talking issues, is we've actually dug in to his source base. We're reading people like Arthur Jensen, E.O. Wilson, uh, Pinker, uh, Farrell, and not just them. We read Rogers. We read Piaget. We're reading everybody. And what it seems to come down to is, oh, my God, there's tremendous consensus between all of these best thinkers we have ever had using best methods and tools and most expensive ones ever developed. It's like, we're actually in the opposite position of where the postmodernists would try and convince us to be. It's, we, I mean, there's a point I brought up. I had, a, I had a really great date today, right? And so something mm-hmm. I brought up is I was like, well, you know, sort of the claim that seems to be made is that, you know, we're an oppressive patriarchy. And it's like, okay, sure, maybe, But something you need to keep in mind is think of Cuba. People to leave Cuba in order to make it to America would risk their lives on floating, on on like barely uh, sailable floating rafts, which if any storm or large wave came, which makes me think of the interstellar 10,000 foot wave, which was terrifying, uh, they're dead. So they're willing to risk death to leave. If I want to leave America, all i have to do is go 30 miles south i'm in san diego and walk through a turnstile mm-hmm. that doesn't even have an attendant at it it's oh. like that's not the same <laughs> i can freely come and go and someone might say well that's a
1: weak argument it's like how is that a weak argument well in order- okay yeah. so i think part of i think part of what height points out which is important and i know that peterson makes this point as well is that there's like there's pretty pretty solid evidence for where people get their political leanings right yes in, in terms of personality and certain principles that they consider to be of of greatest significance for whatever reason right not to like reduce them to that but to sort of like yeah give evidence for and try to explain some of what's behind those like political beliefs and 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 so the spectrum seems to be well, pretty well balanced in this country, like mm. where you you have the freedom to be very inflammatory on whichever end of it you want to be on, right? You have the ability to say a lot of stuff which is totally unsubstantiated, mm-hmm. um, but then you also, at the same time, have the ability to say a lot of stuff which is well substantiated. And when you put all those things out there in the market for mm. people to look at, you know, inevitably, in the absence of a kind of tyranny or, um, you know, all sorts of, uh, totally horrible things which are possible, but which haven't happened yet. So like those, those true, you know, substantiated claims will, will out right over time. Right. That, that seems to be like, what I would come back to is like, yeah, like, of course people can say a lot of stuff and, and just like not, um, not spend the time or the attention to look closely at, at the competing claim. And that's okay. Uh, but I'm not gonna re- really waste a lot of time um, bemoaning that fact. I think you know it's gonna it's gonna be okay. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> well, I it's a, it's like it. It. it's like we can take the conversation to a totally different place. These uh, it's like these thinkers that are being pilloried, the ones I've mentioned before, the biologists, the psychologists, the political scientists. They they all have public works that exist in physical space that reference works that you can find in academic journals, and many of which. For free, or you know, you can you can get around the paywall in some way or another. Maybe you can just pay, but you probably don't have to. I, mean, I I'm even part of a Facebook group where like poor scholars ask for people to send them uh, letters. It's <laughs> called the Philosophical Underclass, and so awesome. it's almost like uh, I don't know. Like we're at a crossroads where it's like, mm, okay, well, let's look at these sort of Marxist postmodern claims and let's start addressing them actually.
1: So like, yeah, right. you
0: know, when my grandmother, and you know, someone can claim this anecdotal, but I can produce the evidence from the boy crisis. Uh, I can produce the exact evidence from the National Labor Union or National Labor Bureau. Um, but like when my, mother, when my grandmother was in medical school, there were three women there at the Georgia Medical College. The, oh. the date I recently went on today, I'm gonna sound like Ben Shapiro, was with a doctor. And she said, well, it, it was more like there were 65%. She was at, um, I actually forget exactly what school she's at, so it's a good thing it's not a second date. But um, she uh, <laughs> she said that there were something like 65% women, and that actually accords with something Warren Farrell said. Then several of the care professions, especially sort of white-collar ones like nursing and um, and being physicians, the women are actually now getting to where they're sliding over the 50% uh, mm. range in terms of, Uh, how many there are in a profession. And it's like, okay, well, even if, and you know, I sent you a picture of this, that the most recent New Yorker still makes the claim that there's a wage gap, even though Warren Farrell 20 years ago wrote a book, Why Men Earn More, which has 25 reasons why, or 25 things that men tend to do in order to increase their incomes that women can do too. And so- the fact that that sort of claim is still thrown out there without evidence seems, yeah. uh, well, totally absurd. Uh, I mean, just two things I can say to that is, for one, it's not all men that make more than women. A, the vast majority of the top 500 CEOs in the world are men. And you might just as well say they make more than anybody in the world, uh, regardless of their gender. And they simply happen to be men. Warren Farrell lists this out because it tends to take 20 years, six days a week of 16 hours a day to become CEO. That does not sound like oppression or tyranny. That sounds like a choice of a very hard life. And mix that with- Yeah, an obsession. That's exactly right. An obsession with an idea, which again, research shows that who's more likely to be obsessed with ideas rather than people? Men mm-hmm. at the right end of, uh, of the distribution. And so as we know, women and men are mostly the same, but when you have overlapping normal distributions, which do not, uh, which are not 100% together, then you have major differences at the tails. So um, with men and women, most of them are interested in both people and things, but at the right hand of the distribution, who's the most interested in things? Well, men, and how would that translate into a career? Well, engineers, okay. That's an interest issue. Is that an oppression or social construction issue? No. Match that with the fact that women have been injured, are now outperforming men in elementary school, middle school, high school, college, and women under 30 who are single make more than men. And you see that women are increasingly taking over and dominating professions like nursing and uh, being physicians, I can produce the actual statistics on that. I can't just off the top of my head here. And it's like, something seems to be happening, which is not not cohesive with the postmodern narrative. Something real seems to be happening. And what sort of just strikes me is, why is it that this information isn't, well, this information is not difficult to find. Why is it not being highlighted? Why are these facts, which actually show that we're in a very good place, uh relative to the story we're being told why why so, are they remaining hidden until like two schmoes like you and i like go digging for them
1: yeah I, well i don't know i mean the the names that you've cited like I, I haven't read all of that much but um yeah within within the past year or so i've, I've tried to get a, a little better read in, in the science and even just sort of the um the Synthesis or whatever you might want to call it concilience right is eO is mm. Wilson's word that, that's sort of um, coming about and that book was written you know like 30 years ago so yeah. it's not it's not a new thing you know it's not it's not new but I agree that the the critical mass or something seems to be coming to a head here to mix the metaphors right it's like right. there is there is so much overwhelming evidence from one end and there's so much overwhelming rhetoric from the other end. Mm -hmm. And they're sort of like meeting in this uh, this colossal um, uh, fire versus water thing going on. Right. And and what 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 comes out of that is is steam. Right. So a lot of a lot of fog, a lot of. You know, um, I'm going to give a hypothesis.
0: so. So one thing we've done on this podcast is as we are as we are the sort of humanitarians and Peterson and his crew are the scientists and something Peterson has often said is that he wishes his work to be sort of the framework or the foundation of mm. of those who will be the humane scientists moving forward, the people like us who can mm-hmm. use his research to make broader connections. And um, sort of the idea I'm starting to come to is something he often mentions is that some, that the media represents him because, uh, or at least newspaper and print and TV media as it currently is, is dying. And that's not such a big claim mm. given the fact that most companies only last something like 30 years and industries as they are, Um, are of course going to change more and more rapidly given the law of accelerating returns. And just because, say, print media disappears doesn't mean that news disappears. But what that suggests to me is if most people are still getting the vast majority of what they hear from, say, traditional news sources, and what the traditional news sources no longer do is investigate what it is they're producing deeply, but rather investigate the thoughts and opinions that those of similar mindsets to them have about that, which they should be investigating. It shows me what the major deadly problem of traditional print journalism is that they fail to attempt to understand that which they criticize. And then just like a gossiping ninny share that, which other people are saying without a critical apparatus to, to judge it. And so they're saying, well, this is what everybody's saying, and they're all mad at Jordan Peterson. And because they're 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 <laughs> saying these things about him and are mad, therefore they must have good reason for it. And so we're going to report on this. Then people are going to read more. and More people are going to read about how people are angry and are criticizing this guy, though we don't know understand the reasons. And in order to be part of this in group, you have to be mad at this guy and criticize him. And if you ask any questions, then you're outside of the in group, and we're going to hate you because obviously we have good reason to be mad. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, <laughs> But 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 it's a self-perpetuating cycle. It's like no, yeah. uh, you just always then. Oh, now I see. You just always then group around collective anger at someone. You know, and I'm just imagining these like Twitter witch hunts we see against people. Mm-hmm. And they'll make one. They'll step out of line. They'll make some comment that gets perceived as sexist or racist or anything like that, and we gotta ruin them.
1: Right. Well, I just I would just clarify, like, yeah, yeah I mean, there's there's got to be a line that you draw where it's like, yeah, that that thing they said is not OK or whatever. Sure. Right. But but that's really different from what you're describing. Yeah. I see what you're getting at. Yeah. Yeah. And the, so the, it's, it's Trump like Trump up. Yeah. In, go on, sorry. The, no, just just the um the the way that this can spiral uh and become sort of ludicrous to any like reasonable person looking at it from the outside. Uh, is yeah, definitely a thing, definitely a problem. I, my my response to it, like I said, is to like spend my time reading better things. Right, <laughs> that's right. what I would counsel people. To do, so read the sources, yeah. read the sources, and I mean that's
0: that's a legitimate way to discredit someone, right? If I mm-hmm. make a claim, and then you read the books I claim to have read, and they say different things from what I've said, they say, then that's good evidence that I'm either a fool or a liar. But oh. if I if I cite these sources and they do exist and they are rigorous science, well, what yeah. should we change then? Our hypothesis or
1: do we change the facts? <laughs> exactly. It's that frame of, of reference, which is easy to sort of collect under the, the name postmodern or whatever you want to call it. Right. Which it's this kind of lens of interpretation, which seems to be breaking down. Right. O- over about 100 years or whatever, it's kind of been in the ascendance. Ascendancy. I'm not sure, but anyway, at, at this point, it's like okay, we need a new model for the humanities to follow. Like they're mm-hmm. they're clearly not faring well with this one. So so yeah, I think this humanistic, scientific kind of uh, synthesis is like very promising. Yeah, uh, I think it's interesting. It's like we
0: chose the wrong direction. We read some French thinkers at Yale in the 70s, like Derrida and
1: Foucault, and they said I actually everything actually... is interpretation. And, I, I, yeah, yeah, I don't think I don't think anyone read them but it's, like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like a chamber where it's like, oh, like that's the name to like throw around yes. right now okay I'll yes yeah.
0: yes that was the bane of my undergraduate classes I remember reading Jacques Lacan after reading Foucault and Derrida and I just remember thinking I'm not like I, re- I read Plato and Aristotle and I get something out of them read Carl Jung and I get something out of him uh, but these guys mm-hmm. it's hard to understand what they're saying at all you know this this culture of posturing um mm-hmm. and moving forward but it seems like we there were two ways we could have gone two directions if we were following the map and one was mm-hmm. everything's interpretation and mm-hmm. since we know we're mental and articulate beings now we like god can just speak things into existence and they're true and it's like no wrong <laughs> uh no you you actually have to work and like you have to be far more wittgensteinian the world is everything that is the case if you can imagine it there is the potential for you to figure out how to manifest it in the world with your hands, right? Uh You have to manufacture. That's literally what it means, to make by hand in this world. If you are a human, you can't just speak things into existence. The other way we could have gone is, hmm, it seems as if we as humans have a critical apparatus. We can interpret things. But since we occupy a physical and moral world, there are lots of restrictions on our behavior and our thoughts that make it so that even if we can think infinite things in our head, there are only a finite amount of things that can work in reality. And so now that we have such sophisticated measures with science across several different disciplines, anthropology, biology, sociology, psychology, sociology, not as good right now, um, we, we can actually start to, rather than dreaming up infinite possibilities of thought, figure out the actual ways of interpreting the world which might help us to be more effective within it, or to adapt more practically to the world, or to become a more unified people. It's uh, it's as if now what what we could do if we turned around, if we converted our gaze, if we paid attention, is we could use all this uh, until now sort of in the dark, uh, sitting at the center of the labyrinth, information and science, in order to have a much clearer idea of what reality and what we actually are so rather than obscuring what we are and assuming we can't know anything i I would suggest that we're actually in a position to know ourselves and our world much better than we ever have totally
1: yeah it's it's interesting it's the the kinds of categories of thought which are which are in vogue now um in many ways you know you could say they mirror things which have come before um, talking about evolution mm-hmm. or talking about um, information and, and it's in how it's becoming much more massively available. You know, these are things that happen from time to time. Um, but you know, living now it's like very exciting cause they, they seem to all sort of be converging. You know? Right.
0: That's so interesting that you say that and just as I, we're making the claim or I'm making the claim in this podcast that we're a new sort of investigative journalist. We also exist in a time when a claim has been made by someone like a Peterson that we're existing during a Gutenberg or style revolution. So just the printing press brought information at mass, at large, to a larger populace. So now does the internet and specifically YouTube and specifically endeavors like ours here, we are, of course, two uh, veteran teachers talking about what, what we're learning and what we know. Well, people not only have larger access to information, uh, uh everybody has uh, some sort of smartphone in, in the West, or a computer, or access to through public libraries. At this point, right? Exactly. Um, that we are ourselves going through a Gutenberg revolution, where where all this information that does exist can now be proliferated. I guess who? Wow, this is sort of amazing. I guess you know, just like in Interstellar, when Matthew McConaughey realizes that it's not they who was helping him out, but it's him we just like Gary realizes that it wasn't his father that sent the Patronus, but it was him that potentially uh, how we get this information out so that other people can see just what we've seen so they can understand how crazy the situation is, is well, by sharing it ourselves. Yeah, It's like it. if we see it and it seems crazy and we're isomorphic with everybody else, probably if they see it and they see it's crazy, They'll think the same yeah. things we do, which seems to be how teaching and communication works too.
1: The the the, the concept of a spoiler, just to like throw this into the mix, I think is something like where you gotta you've gotta not say everything, right? It's like you can't you can't simply equate mm-hmm. um, like pr- propagating information with people. Um, liking or being interested in or like acting upon it, you know, so it's like those things are really, uh, I don't know. There, there is like a real problem there, which, which I think is worth investigating. And so I, to, to be like very, again, Frank, I, I haven't read enough of the, the people who fall under the the label of like the, the, fo- the, the forerunners of postmodernism, right? Like, but I'm working on it. and, mm-hmm and see if i can actually make some sense of it but i think it's that process of of reading it for yourself of seeing yes you know or a story like getting to the end of the story and actually being like blown away by by the the reveal or like in a joke you can't explain a joke and have it have the same effect as as getting the joke you know so there is something there and and it's important that we not totally throw that out um in questioning the uh the validity, right, of of other uh, thinkers and whatnot who disagree sometimes strongly, sometimes seemingly wrongheadedly, but there's room for a lot of people uh, in, well, that, in, the, that seems in the field. Be,
0: that seems to be exactly what Peterson has done for us. That we're attempting to yeah. do for others. That it's like we're saying what we haven't, what we have figured out based on the data that we have had presented, and we are telling everybody exactly where the data is. And what it is, we're laying it out for them in the same way that we have received it in a more distilled way. But I mean, what yeah. you said seems to agree with exactly what we said earlier, which disagrees with the postmodern claim about the uh, infinitude of stories uh-huh. or the lack of, of truth of stories that precisely the best way to teach somebody is to lay out the facts for them in the same way they were laid out for you with the understanding that since they're isomorphic with you, They will have the same experience that you do, which does seem to be something we actually care about in reality. You might say, oh, that sounds very philosophical. And I say, okay, well, say we're both Westworld fans and the season finale is coming on and I decide to tell you all about it before you get to see it. Will you be angry at me? Answer? Yeah. Absolutely. Why? Because I spoiled it for you. How did I spoil it? Because I interrupted the sequence of facts you would have received in watching it in the same way that I did. It would lead you to having the same great experience that I did that made me so excited that I decided to spoil the experience for you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Which suggests, again, that stories have the power to produce the same effects in us which i mean we're about to talk about harry potter in about an hour here and it's like how how i mean that the existence of that series of books alone is a disproof of part of postmodernism in that it seems like that was a mass phenomenon a collective phenomenon these kids lining up just like outside of a star wars uh show or uh or movie excuse me i sound like an old man there um in order to what well read the exact same story as everyone else and have a very similar unto same experience while reading it that they'll then share with each other and uh, bond over, right? Like uh, as we've been doing this Harry Potter series, we realized <laughs> there, there is a Pottermore. There's this whole world that's been generating that people now connect over uh, based on a story. Hmm. It's like, how is that not real?
1: <laughs> that, that's like the uh the classic right you walk over and you and you kick the stone and you refute uh whatever it is you refute it thus you know i forget who tells that story but anyway yeah. anyone listening should definitely check out uh interstellar you know just like try not to listen to the last uh little bit of what you said about it
0: yeah i apologize for that for that small bit but at least it, it's a 2014 movie so i don't feel so bad about
1: yeah, it. it it's, a, it's uh, been a-
0: it's been, and you know, maybe, maybe within context and interpret, you know, maybe if all interpretations are subjective, then they won't see the same sort of movie that I saw. So
1: <laughs> yep. uh,
0: that's okay. if next postmodernism next. is correct. There can be no spoilers because you certainly won't see what I saw. So there's no need to even talk about it.
1: Well yeah. But you and um, uh, Babcock are talking about that soon or sometime? Very soon. Um, very soon. We're okay. starting a section on
0: space epics. Sweet. in the next Sweet. uh in the next week or so um and then we got oscar back on for our third great men podcast mm. on a darius the great darius the first in um oh, cool. on monday and then you oh, and mm-hmm.